For those who are new or, or new-ish, haven't been for a while, um, we are in a series on sex, gender, and the gospel. And the way this series has progressed, uh, the messages are independent, but they do build on each other a little bit. So there is some context, and uh, those are available online. I encourage you to check them out, uh, because there will be a few things that I refer to or assume you may have heard that you haven't. Then um, the way this series has progressed, we, we look at three foundational passages on sex, gender, the gospel, uh, passages from Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3, the very beginning of Scripture, which are really foundational for any topic you want to talk about. We looked at two passages then from the New Testament that are sometimes controversial, sometimes a little difficult to interpret, about how men and women relate in the context of marriage. And now... We're going to look at two passages this week and next on how men and women relate in the context of the church. This is a very difficult text, but before we, we dig into it, well, let's, let's read the text and then I will uh, speak for a while on it. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we're going to look at the second half of verse 33, 33b, down to verse 36. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Is there anything... If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? So we can see why that might be a little controversial in, in 2018. Um, and I, all week long, I was like, why did I put this on the calendar? Why? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to preach this passage. Because um, it is a tricky one, and it, and it involves a lot of difficulties. Um, in general, you know, when we come across things um, that we disagree with um, or that rub us the wrong way, most of us have sort of intellectual defense mechanisms, don't we? Um, so we have a, a worldview. We have a way of thinking about the world that controls the decisions we make and, and the people we interact with and how we interact with them. And it winds up becoming a filter. A worldview is a great thing in some ways because it helps us process all the, you know, tons and tons of information that we're receiving on any given day. But it can also be a bad thing because a worldview can sometimes limit the data that we allow us to get in. And so if, if there's data out there that contradicts or challenges our worldview, our natural reaction is, is to become defensive intellectually to it. And so we shove it out. Sometimes we do that antagonistically, and, and we, we just rebel against anything that doesn't sound the way we want it to sound, and, and we become hostile toward the idea or the people espousing the idea. Um, but there's other ways that we, we wrestle with things that are uncomfortable for us. Sometimes we tune them out. I'm guessing that for most Christians, uh, most faithful Christians who, who've read their Bibles, they come to passages like this one, and they believe the scriptures, and they believe them to be true. And, and so they are, they're not going to become hostile toward the Bible because of this. But they read a passage like this, and they say, I have no idea what's going on here. And they just quickly move on to a 
the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians as they're reading through it. And then they hopefully get to 2 Corinthians as fast as possible and forget that they read it. In other words, they just tune it out. You know, they, they, they put on a distraction. And, and I, I, I don't want to look at a text like this because it's, it's hard, it's confusing, and I don't want it to say what it sounds like it says, and I, and I don't know what it says really. Well, that's not a good um, response for us. This is one of the most notoriously difficult passages in the New Testament. And, and it's it kind of almost in a category by itself, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to preach this passage separate from a series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, that way I don't have to spend a lot of time on it someday when we go through that book. And you've probably read this. You felt like, wow, that's, that's extreme. I mean, that can't really mean what it sounds like it means. What is, what is it saying? And then, and then you moved on. You just kind of shoved it out of the back of your head. It didn't change your thoughts on church much. And, and we probably all do that. You know, we come to passages as well as you know, politics and science and everything else, um, things we don't understand well and we move over it mentally because we don't know what to do with it. Sometimes that's because when the scripture, it's because the passage itself is confusing or dense. And sometimes it's because in cases like this, the passage seems really clear, but really clearly at odds with what we've come to think and expect. But it is a bad habit, and I'm guilty of it too sometimes, but we ought to wrestle with Scripture. Intellectually, we wrestle to gain understanding, and, and then at the heart level, we wrestle to accept and conform with Scripture. But these things aren't even easy, even for, you know, so-called professional Bible scholars. And, and as a result, there have been a number of interpretations of this passage and some really weird ones out there as as even the pros try to get their hearts around what the text is saying. Let's look at this passage on a surface level. Let's, let's just look at it right at the, the basic level of what it says, and then let's see what we can, we can do to make sense of it. This is going to run a little different than most of my sermons, but that's okay. Paul begins, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Now, if you're looking at a different translation, you might see that some versions think that the end of verse 33 goes with the paragraph before it. And some translations think it goes with this paragraph. It's a tough call. It doesn't really make a lot of difference in interpretation. Um, this way, it sounds a bit redundant. As in all the churches, they should keep silent in the churches. Uh, but I think there's some good reasons for the redundancy. The simplest explanation might be best. Paul is emphasizing this point. Just like in all the churches, so in the churches of Corinth, let it be this way. But of course, there's the question of what it should be. And he says that the women should keep silent. Let's just wrestle with the surface level here. It's a command. It's, it's a third-person command, which we don't do a lot of in English. But that's what it is. And, and that's strong. So maybe a more astute Bible inquisitor might ask, well, what does Paul mean by silent? Like maybe silent doesn't mean silent, right? So I did some research, and here's what keep silent means. It means keep silent. Uh, apparently that's why the translators translated it that way. Um, and that's a 
good pro tip. There usually aren't secret meanings to Bible words. Generally, top-notch, respected scholars in the field of biblical languages translate the Bible with a host of other thinkers there to help them think through how to put that meaning into good English. Generally, if a word is translated a certain way, it's because it means that. There's some exceptions, but don't always be looking for the secret meaning to words. But that leads to all sorts of other questions, right? Like, why? Why would Paul want to keep women silent? Well, if we can handle it, Paul gives us a reason. Hence, the next word is for. So he's indicating this is my explanation. And he gives us a negative reason and a positive reason. Negatively, they're not permitted to speak. They should be quiet because they're not permitted to speak. Okay, thanks, Paul. Um, Positively, they should be in submission. If the basic command wasn't clear enough, this seems to be. Uh, the women are not permitted to speak, ergo they should be quiet. Rather, submission is called for, as the law also says. So Paul is claiming that this rationale is from the law. Now, the, not the law of Corinth, not the law of Rome. The law refers to the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The books of Moses. And the upshot is that Paul is appealing to the scriptures for his case. After all, if it's, it's God's word, we must accept it and fall in line. Verse 35 might help us to understand something of the background. When reading a letter like 1 Corinthians or Romans or 1 Peter, it's, likely, it's, it's like hearing one end of a phone call. And sometimes we have to piece together what was being said on the other end from the clues that we've been given. And this is one of those clues. So Paul writes, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. So apparently Paul is responding to a situation in which women are talking out of a desire to learn. And it's apparently mainly wives, although in the first century we have to remember the vast majority of adult women would have been married. So this might not be an important distinction between wives and women generally. They are desiring to learn, and as a result, they speak up. We can imagine they were probably asking questions because the primary form of uh, vocal articulation that we use when desiring to learn is a question. And Paul wants them to learn. That's an important point because there have been many movements in history that have tried to curtail women from learning. But Paul says they should ask their husbands at home in these particular matters. For, another explanation he says, it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. So sort of a summary rationale. It's shameful, Paul says, to speak in church. The word shameful is pretty strong. It's a fairly rare word, but I don't think it's coincidental that it also appears in chapter 11, which is another somewhat controversial passage that I'm not going to touch on in this series um, that deals with men and women in the church. But I will make mention of it again in a moment. It's also a word that the verb form, this is like an adjective here, but the verb form of it appears at the end of Genesis 2. When the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. It's also worth noting that this phrase, 
in the church, although that sounds pretty normal to us, is a surprisingly rare word in the New Testament, except in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is a word, this is a phrase that comes up a lot in 1 Corinthians, and that might be significant. And I want to pause on that point because I think we're likely to hear in the church and think this means something like when we come into the church's building. Because we so often use the word church to refer to the facility that houses what we do here. But the word church means an assembly or a congregation. It's a gathering of people. Generally, when you read the word church in the Bible, you should think of the gathering of God's people. Sometimes it, it probably refers to a secular gathering, but, but think gathering. And that gives the passage a little different sense. It doesn't change all of our interpretive pro uh, problems, but does color them a bit. As if it says, as in all the gatherings of God's holy people, the women should keep silent in the gatherings. For it is shameful for a woman to speak among the gathering of God's people. That doesn't solve everything, no. But let's keep in mind how Paul is using this word. He's not thinking that there's this building they go to, and when they're in this building, the women shut up. That's not what he's saying. Finally, Paul ends with a couple rhetorical questions. Or, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? As in your Bible, some would put these more with the section that comes next. But I think they go best in this paragraph, Paul's point seems to be this. The Corinthians are apparently not heeding this advice at present. They are acting in a way that is contrary to what other Christian communities are doing. And Paul is appealing to their arrogance that they would consider that they can embark on a path different from all the other churches as if the gospel message had started with them. Instead of with Jesus and then Jerusalem. Or that they had some sort of special authority to dictate how it was applied. As if they were the only ones who had heard the gospel message. So they were merely working out its implications on their own and had no points of reference. You know, they, they might be different, Paul's saying, you know, if... Um, you know, back in the, in the first century, the church history and, and it teaches us that Thomas uh, reportedly was the one who first evangelized India, the Apostle Thomas. And you can maybe imagine that first, you know, so far away from most of the other Christian world at that time, that maybe they're working out the gospel implications on their own apart from any other churches that they can look at. And they could maybe be excused a little bit for doing some weird things because they can't interact with other Christians as easily. And Paul's like, but come on, guys. You're not the only ones that have received God's word. What are you doing? And this is an interesting point. Because the history of the fracturing of denominations is in no small part due to the rugged individualism of these great states. Particularly in light of America's second great awakening, which reached its zenith in the early 1800s. Uh, with gospel fervor on the frontiers of the American countryside, a number of individuals began to work out the Christian faith without dialogue with the existing churches and Christians, let alone those who had come before them. And, and part of that was the weakness of communication in the time period and the remoteness of the area. But part of that was surely great old American arrogance. 
And, and, and so in this period, we get the, the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, the Churches of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the Evangelical Christian Church in Canada, the International Churches of Christ, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons, the Shakers. There's also the Holiness Movement that spurned out there that created a sick or significantly influenced about 50 to 100 more denominations. And so when people ask, like, why are there so many Christian denominations? A good short answer that explains a lot of it is America. Um, not all of it, but, the, you know, America, thank you. Um, but the gospel is the gospel is the gospel. And the practical implications of the gospel, the outworking of the gospel in practice and organization, that's a little bit more subtle. We, we never compromise on the gospel. We never compromise on the heart of the Christian message. But some of the outworking of that is a little bit harder. It's a little more difficult. It's not quite as clear cut because we're reading what the church did in the first century and we're applying it to the 17th century, the 18th, the 19th, the 20th, the 21st century. And so we're, we're going to come away with some different perspectives on that. But when we ignore the history and the habits of faithful churches that have come before us, we do it at our peril. And that's definitely a concern in our culture. Many, many Christian groups have popped up in the last decade or two, especially attempting to entirely rethink Christianity. Often coming away with various different practices and things that we've not seen in history and, and sometimes even strange and peculiar beliefs that have not been a part of orthodox Christianity for 2,000 years. And on one hand, I sympathize with these groups. We don't want to read our cultural and historical assumptions into our Christianity. Because when we do that, we get a Christianity that is distinctly American, or distinctly English, or distinctly Canadian, whatever that means, or distinctly Indian, or distinctly Chinese. And we don't want that. We want a, we want a Christianity that is distinctly Christian that looks different from the cultures of this world. And so I can understand that desire to start with a clean intellectual slate, so to speak. But what's missed in these efforts sometimes is that the conclusions that have been arrived at by modern churches are based on careful reflection that have spanned centuries conclusions, resting on conclusions, resting on conclusions. Sure, some of them may be faulty, but if you're sailing a ship and you think you've got some faulty boards in the hull or some excess weight that doesn't seem necessary and you don't have a deep understanding of ship construction and you don't understand all the decisions that went into building that ship exactly that way, you might remove some unnecessary components. You might make something that looks a little bit more beautiful in places, but you still might end up shipwrecked. For what it's worth, it seems that the most careful and studious thinkers tend to urge caution. And on the other hand, many of the radical rethinkers of our age, they're very knowledgeable, but a better descriptor might be having just enough knowledge to be dangerous. That's the danger of a little knowledge, right? That's a bit of an aside. But with all that said, where do we land? We've got to come back to men and women, right? And I think we're probably still a little unsettled. After all, if you grew up someplace, you know, like Ryan, you know, in Holmes County, uh, you probably think it's okay for women to not 
uh, be silent in the Christian gatherings unless you're, you're Ryan. Um, you know, but, you know, and apparently we do too, right? Um, we had a big nut up here singing just a minute ago. Uh, it's very common for us to have women up here reading scripture or giving announcements, all sorts of things. Um, we have women speak in church here. Are we unbiblical? Do we need to repent? No, I don't think so. Not in this area, at least. I'm sure we've got areas that we need to, to repent about. And I think Paul agrees. After all, in chapter 11, we mentioned that before, Paul talks approvingly about women prophesying in church. By every interpretation I know, a prophesying among the congregation of God's people involves speaking. People don't generally contradict themselves within a few sentences, especially not intelligent, careful thinkers who are painstakingly working out an extended argument in a letter that's going to be sent by foot over the course of weeks or months. You can't correct it easily, so you get it right. Paul's not contradicting himself, so what do we have? Well, let's back up and look at the context. Now, someday we're going to get into 1 Corinthians, and, and that'll be a great series. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's a rich letter with all sorts of practical implications and applications for our church life together. This little snippet, however, toward the tail end of chapter 14, comes at the end of a section that stretches from 12 to 14. Chapter 12 to chapter 14. In which Paul discusses spiritual gifts, or perhaps better, spiritual things, or perhaps even so-called spiritual people. The point is the Corinthians have a lot of questions, a lot of questionable practices about how the super spiritual Christians among them are behaving in their use of spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues and prophecy and other things. And in chapter 12, Paul tries to stress the value of all members of the church against the ideas of having special members or super Christians or somehow super spiritual Christians that are somehow better than the others. He wants them to understand, we need all of you, no matter how you are wired or gifted by the Spirit. In chapter 13, we have the famous love chapter. Paul shows them that true Christian love isn't all about the spiritual one-upmanship and pride and arrogance that they are demonstrating. Christian love is humble and surrendering and looks out for other people above all else. And then he gets to chapter 14. He begins with some practical instructions and rebuke of the Corinthians' specific practices. Above all, on the principle that God is an orderly God and not a chaotic God, our corporate worship service should reflect an orderliness that apparently the Corinthians didn't have. And so he lays down some specific rules or some guidelines for them. In particular, in particular about how to engage in prophecy in a way that is beneficial to the entire congregation. Since presumably prophecy is supposed to be for the benefit of the congregation as a whole. And on the heels of that, Paul makes these remarks about women speaking. Right after this, he moves on to a different subject entirely. And so, if we're reading in context... we're going to assume that Paul is still on the general subject of doing things in an orderly way for the benefit of the entire congregation. And the most recent subject on that front is prophecy. But he can't be talking about women not 
speaking for prophecy because he's already stated that women can prophesy in the assembly. And that's normal and that's good. So the problem isn't the prophecy itself. So what is it? The only thing left in the context is the weighing of prophecies that we see in verse 30. Read again. Uh, toward the end of 14, just before this passage, Paul writes, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, let the women be silent. Taken this way, the remarks about women are almost an aside. Maybe a parenthetical remark about the role of women with regard to the weighing of prophecies. Well, what do we mean by the weighing of prophecies? And what do we mean that women shouldn't be doing it? Well, that's certainly a much bigger discussion than we can fully get into this morning. Although a lot of that we're going to cover next week. But the, God, the Bible clearly speaks of a gift of prophecy in the New Testament. It also seems to be clearly different than prophecies in the Old Testament. Or at least very different from what comes to mind when we think of guys like Isaiah or Hosea or Ezekiel or Micah. Those prophecies had the force of scripture. They spoke on behalf of God. By contrast, New Testament prophecy is rarely recorded for us. In fact, the one instance, I think there's just one instance where we actually have the words itself, and it's a bit of mixed character, a true prediction mixed with some bad counsel. That's the way I interpret it. Some other people would say that it's a partly true, partly false prediction. I think, I think it was accurate, but that's, that's a sermon for the book of Acts. Um, but there's definitely a little bit of a mixed character there. Prophecy, however we understand it then, in the New Testament sense, doesn't have the same force as God's word, as scripture. And in a place like Corinth, especially, where there's a lot of people claiming to be prophets, it needs to be judged. It needs to be weighed. It needs to be tested. Is this a real Christian prophet or not? Or a real Christian prophecy or not? Should we trust this word or not? Well, how do we test it? What's the standard for whether we accept a, a prophecy and commend it to the congregation? Well, if, if the prophecies aren't the word of God and, and the prophecies are subject to the word of God, then our only test is by God's word. And since prophecy was something that the 1 Corinthians tend to view as having benefit, uh, the, the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's wording there, it seems like he tends to view it as having a benefit for the entire congregation. In other words, it's not a, a private prophecy. It's not, um, it, it's not a situation, at least this is not what Paul seems to have in mind here. We can debate whether this is a thing or not. Um, but Paul doesn't seem to have in mind a situation where uh, some so-called prophet has a private word for a private individual. He seems to have in mind 
a situation where the prophet or the one given the prophecy has a message that is beneficial to the body as a whole. And so we're looking at a situation which people are being called to bring the word of God to bear on the life and the direction of the congregation. Specifically, they're making a determine a determination whether or not some prophecy is in line with God's word. And if so, then having the authority to commend it to the congregation to hold fast to it. Elsewhere in a passage that we're going to look at next week, Paul restricts or seems to restrict women teaching or exercising authority over men. That's controversial in its own right, but it gives us a sense of why weighing and judging prophecies in the light of God's word might be problematic because the weighing of the prophecies is taking a a magisterial or, or teaching role of the word of God and placing it over the prophecies in order to direct the congregation. So let's sum up three things that we've, I think, established so far. One, women can speak in church. They have to in order to prophesy. They have to to use tongues. So this must be a contextually, contextually limited prohibition. Second, Paul is concerned about the orderliness in service. And part of that orderliness of service is hearing prophecies one by one and giving them due time to be weighed and judged. He doesn't want them just rushing off and like, oh, that was great, that was great, that was exciting, let's hear another one, let's hear another one. Oh, and you've got one too. No, let's take time and really assess and weigh carefully the value of those prophecies. And then for reasons that likely have to do with the role of women teaching or having authority in the church, it would be inappropriate for the women to speak out during this time of weighing the prophecies. So in light of those three things, I think we can begin to make sense of the rest of the passage. What, what Paul, when Paul says that the women should be in submission, as the law says, he is most likely referring to the creation order in Genesis 2. This is something that has kept coming up repeatedly in this series, with good reason. It also makes sense, Paul's use of uh, the, this term for shameful, which we see in Genesis 2. Now, there, uh, as Paul points out elsewhere, and as we spoke about in the message on Genesis 2, is this idea that the husband has an initiatory responsibility with his wife. And the wife helps the husband to work out the calling that has been given to them jointly. The, The commission that Adam has been given by God but it needs to be fulfilled by all of mankind. While Genesis 2 doesn't use the term submission, a term that we should remember does not have the negative connotations that we hear in English, it does uh, presuppose an ordering that involves submission, just like we saw two weeks ago in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. There we saw wives, Paul said, were to submit to their husbands. 
And we saw that that seemed to be born out of something of the creation order in Genesis 2. Likely these are things that Paul has already talked to this uh, largely pagan Gentile church about. And taught them uh, from the Old Testament scriptures about how the outworking of the Messiah happens in a new community. Paul is eager to have the women learn anything they need. But their learning in this particular case shouldn't usurp the need to bring the word of God to bear on weighing the prophecies. So any questions they have about those matters are best left for another time. Speaking out in this way would be shameful because it would be counter to the creation order. I think it's a very specific set of circumstances. To summarize it all, I think the big idea of the passage then is, is improper for women to be part of leading the congregation to judge prophecies because it goes against the creation order. That's not very catchy. I usually try to make the big idea catchier than that. But improper for women to be part of leading the congregation to judge prophecies because it goes against the creation order. How do we apply that today? Well, part of that obviously depends a little bit on your definition of prophecy, which is a, a much bigger conversation for another day. But let me touch on two broadly. Um, there are schools of thought that think Christian prophecy, whatever it was, ended sometime when the apostles died or near that time. I don't agree with that view, but if you're in that camp, uh, then these verses don't have much relevance to you, <laughs> and you, you can apply them by not applying them. Um, another view of prophecy is that it's a message impo- uh, uh, impressed upon a Christian and, and there's so many subtle different variations on this. But again, for another day. So I'm, I'm being very broad brush strokes here. Um, a message impressed upon a Christian for the benefit of the congregation. Impressed upon the Christian by the Holy Spirit for the benefit of the congregation. It could have more personal significance, but I think what we see in the New Testament examples suggests that even when the prophecy is about a single person, it seems to have a wider range of impact. And and that's the view I tend to side with. I think it's um, all things considered in the life of the body of Christ relatively rare. But I don't necessarily mean absolutely rare. Not as common, I think, as as we see in 1 Corinthians. Remember, 1 Corinthians is a letter that's spending a lot of time discussing the misuse and the abuse... And even the phony use of certain gifts of the Spirit. So we don't, we don't want to make that our interpretive guide for how often these things should happen. One time, some of you know this story, or at least a little bit of this story. An individual uh, claimed to receive a revelation at this church. He took it as personal. Uh, a personal revelation, though it impugned the leadership in a, in a good swath of this church. But despite that, he didn't feel the need, even after it was suggested, to bring it to the entire church. It was a prophecy that, if true, definitely had consequences for everyone. 
Um, if he had given us the opportunity to weigh that prophecy, we might say it would have been inappropriate for the women to weigh in on that. Perhaps another time we'll have an opportunity to weigh such a prophecy. But there's maybe another level of application from this text. Don Carson, uh, one of the, the greatest New Testament scholars of our era, uh, points out that the, in the Greek world, women were not allowed to utter a word in an assembly. The secular church, if you will, ecclesia. The tremendous freedom for women to speak and act and do and contribute in the life of the Holy Church, Jesus' assembly, led the Corinthians perhaps to an excess. In other words, as you read through and you come across a passage like 1 Corinthians 14 and it seems out of place, realize that this is a tremendous exception. And the amount of freedom that is being given to women in the book of 1 Corinthians, let alone the entire New Testament, would have been out of character for the first century Greek world, of which Corinth was squarely in the middle of. And sometimes we as Christians take our freedom to excess. We apply our freedom in ways that go beyond the bounds of what God would have for us. And that, in fact, is a major theme of the book of 1 Corinthians. In Jesus, just for an example, you have the freedom to drink alcohol. You do. Jesus drank alcohol. The disciples drank alcohol. Timothy drank. Paul even commanded Timothy to drink alcohol. That, that's in the Bible. But you don't have to drink. And it's easy for that freedom to become inappropriate, isn't it? To drink too much, to become buzzed so that your decision making is no longer guided by the Holy Spirit. As Paul warns in Galatians 5, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You have freedom to come to church late. You do. <clears throat> A lot of you do. You're not going to hell because of being late to church. But it's easier to go astray in the direction of tardiness and excess tardiness than it is to go astray in, in excess promptness, isn't it? Your freedom to be late may serve your flesh. A few extra minutes of sleep. A few extra minutes sipping your coffee. But it does not help you serve others. The songs you might sing to your fellow Christians, the encouragement you might give before service, the new visitor you might greet and, and, and make a name of. As we get close to November, you, want, you have the freedom to contribute to political campaigns. You do. There's nothing preventing you from doing that in Jesus, by all means. In fact, you have the freedom to support the Republicans, you have the freedom to support the Democrats, you even have the freedom, I think, to support the Green Party. Um, you do what you feel is good to keep Caesar in check, but you can go to excess. Your flesh might 
crave a change in political structures that is at odds with what Jesus is ultimately planning to do when he returns as king. You might forget the coming king of kings in your desire to see change in the present world. And your time and effort and money spent in that political campaign, if drawn to excess, might prevent you from loving and serving a brother or sister in need. We could talk about a whole host of topics. In Jesus, you have freedom. But our freedom does come within contours. Unlimited freedom, unchecked freedom is really no freedom at all, but it's really a form of slavery to our own desires and whims. When we see some boundaries on our freedom in Scripture, we have to remember that they are for our good. We mentioned this the other week, but we so often we focus on, uh, like, like Adam and Eve, focusing on the one thing God withheld from them at the expense of focusing on the billions of glorious things that God freely gave to them. And that one thing that was withheld from them became an idol, something to worship, something to bow to, and a cause of rebellion. In Christ, we have been given the universe. But like the Corinthians before us, we have to be careful that we do not allow God's bountiful gifts to not be checked by God's very meager proscriptions where they apply. And if there is a, a lesson to be gleaned from the Corinthians, it's certainly that our excesses of Christian liberty can destroy us from within. Well, next week, we will talk more about that teaching and authority role. But for now, let's close in prayer. Father, forgive us. Forgive us, Father, that we do not wrestle with your word. I myself included, but we do not wrestle with your word as we ought. <clears throat> we pass on things that are hard. We're intellectually lazy. And our hearts are hard, so we don't like it when scripture speaks in ways that are discordant with us. Forgive us, Father, for when we rebel against your word because we don't like what it has to say. And forgive us, Father, for the ways in which we take the freedom that we have in Christ, the knowledge of our forgiveness, the confidence in our preservation by the mighty hand of Jesus, that we use our freedom as a license for excess and for sin. Make us here uh, a people of moderation, a people of balance, a people whose excesses are the excesses that can never be faulted, 
an excess of love and mercy and grace and submitting ourselves to one another, encouraging one another. Let, we, let us be known for our excesses of humility, not our excesses of license. May we consider how we can use our freedom for building one another up. And not for obtaining the satisfaction that we have in this present body. Out of pride, out of lust, out of craving. Help us to kill those deceits in our heart that we might live all the more for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's continue worshiping in song. Stand.